It's all on the table. In this if game the two, right if now. both dice are red, then you get the heart. But if one's red and one's black, then you get a lightning bolt. Right. Yeah, you get the the thunderhead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. I'm Nathan Pletta. I'm an independent game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. What are we talking about on the Design Games podcast today, Will? This time we're talking about dice and not quite everything that comes with them. We talked about a lot of kind of high high level theoretical stuff, but we also want to talk about some immediately useful stuff such as dice. And all of the things that come into contact with the game and with the players through them is kind of what I was thinking, right? Is that dice hitting the table are as close to rubber meeting the road as you can get, I think, in a lot of uh, RPG and game design. And still, it's not going to be a... It's not going to cover the totality of game design because there are so many aspects, whether you're doing cards, you're throwing stones, you're drawing coins, whatever it is. But they're a great example that we can get really specific and detailed into and really look at how these things work to give a sense of what, in some cases, day-to-day game design actually includes. I think in, in general, there's a tendency to use like the phrase when the dice hit the table or, or say the dice as a stand-in for a randomizer, which could be any of what you just described. Cards, runestones, flipping coins, some kind of like technology-based randomizer or whatever. But in this case, we want to talk about dice because that's what many, many games use. We both have designed games that use dice. So it seems like a, a fruitful topic to try and pull some, some specific insights out of. To be, let's be clear real quick, just to make sure that I'm not assuming too much about what I know to be right, <laughs> uh, but also so that we're not jumping off a ramp too fast. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the hell that means. And to be clear, I'm no math whiz. Like all Neither of, am I. All of my, my probability knowledge is from very basic coursework and designing games and doing right. research on what I'm designing. So, and, and I often have done the same research 10 times on 10 different games, two years apart, because I can't remember, you know, I can't remember what the, what the specific odds are of getting an 11 on 2D, on, on 3D8. Right. Yeah. And I have to look it up and that's fine. Yeah. So, you know, if we, if we misuse a, a term that has a specific mathematical meaning, it is equally out of ignorance and out of shorthand, not out of trying to show off our elite math knowledge that's actually wrong. Right. And at the same time, uh, that means that I encourage uh, any and all of you to not just, you know, Google some of this stuff and find out for yourself, but also uh, to not be dismayed if you don't know something already or if you have to Google it three times like I do. Don't worry about it. And one of the examples I just want to say so that we have a sense of what makes uh, a linear progression linear is a 1D20 is linear. Each of those numbers has the even chance of coming up. Uh, 1 through 20 has an even chance, a 5% chance each of coming up, as opposed to uh, two six-sided dice rolled and added together like in craps or an apocalypse rolled or World, worldwide wrestling or, or what have you. You roll the two of them, add them together. Seven is statistically uh, weighted, is statistically advantageous, uh, uh, advantaged, I should say, in that, in that arrangement to come up. And two and 12 are the least likely to come up. And they form a little what's called a bell curve, where it's higher in the middle and then low on the two ends. So it looks like a bell. And that's why it's called that. But bell, they, bell curves can be steep or shallow or broad or narrow. And there are lots of different circumstances based on the number of dice and what kind of dice you're using. And if you're adding a modifier and all that stuff. Right. And a curve can have, uh, I don't think it's a bell curve anymore, but a, a curve can have multiple peaks where... Can't think of, of one offhand, but there or uh, like like curves where you're rolling dice and then rolling another set of dice and subtracting them from each other. Right, right. Those can have multiple peaks, um, stuff like that. I, this is if uh, if we're cool with it, this is a great spot. One of the things that I'll plug is is a, a site online called Any Dice, A N Y D I C E, which I use um, lately. I've used lots of these sites over the years, but Any Dice is a great kind of, it's not even really, it's graphing, tabling, charting for lots of different dice combinations, including dropping the lowest, dropping the highest adding numbers to it, exploding dice, which exploding dice, right, are those things like in games where you roll uh, two six-sided dice, and if you get box cars, then you get to add a die, and if that is also a six, you get to add a die. Those dice are said to be exploding. Yeah, any dice is great. I'm not very good at using it because it uses, it, like I said, I'm not very mathy, and it uses some kind of math expression mm. language, but it is what I see cited most often as where to go to run probability curves and all that business. So. 
And so when we talk about uh, randomness specifically, here's a question for you. Yeah. Do we care if our, as game designers, if people playing our games use dice that are fair? Do we care, like, in, a, in this, like, platonic ideal of a 20-sided die has an exactly 5% chance to roll any given number right. on any given roll? How much does that matter to us? Or how much does it matter to you? How much does it matter to me? Uh, what's interesting is is it depends to me a great deal on the game, which is to say that in craps it matters a lot and in everything else it doesn't to me. Because I'm not going to roll the dice enough and there isn't money on at stake. That illusion of perfect randomness mm-hmm. is still just fuel for dramatization in an RPG, right? Even when somebody says, when we get into that stochastic madness of somebody saying, well, like the gambler's fallacy, I haven't rolled a 20 all night, so it's coming. Soon it'll be here. That's good drama, whether or not I actually only have a 5% chance of rolling a 20. Right. Whether so it you're, matter to me a great deal. Whether you're, you're, die, you're using one of those dice that has uh, some kind of like manufacturing defect so it's actually weighted like as we've seen on those water right testing Subs, dice and water yeah. videos right? so that it's subtly so that it is still essentially from a human the contact from the human palm to the human tabletop it is still sufficiently unpredictable but it is not evenly stochastic it is not evenly random right right yeah so, so that what do i care i don't know yeah so that that unpredictability is actually i think more what i'm concerned about than the idea of this perfect randomness. And to answer that question for myself, I I don't. Generally, so my here's my here's my party line on this, and you can tell me what you think. Sure. For almost every tabletop role-playing game, even one in which you're rolling a lot of dice, which might be you roll, say, 20 or 30 mm-hmm. individual dice over the course of an evening. Which to me seems like a lot, I guess, in some for some games that's not as many. But the point is. Any individual session of a game, the the full probability spread of a given die mechanic is actually not necessarily going to be seen. Actually, it will almost never be seen, right? If, if, yeah, yeah. Like if I like if I sit down to play D anD D and I roll a D twenty twenty times over the course of the night, right. I am not going to see every number once, right? Right, and right. that's that's a very inflated kind of bogus example of that idea where in order to to talk about the probabilistic outcomes you're talking about thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of instances of a given mechanic working right but we still care about probability right so why why do we care about probability and what does it get us to to pull that apart the question which is a great question apart just a little bit the first thing is for me is who is we i found myself designing differently in the last i'm really honestly with the last 24 months uh, for players who do and players who do not know or care about the bell curve on 2d6, mm-hmm. right? Like whether or not a player says, I tell them, you know, seven is the average number on 2d6 and they go, whatever. And players who, for whom that information is very important and different games can be received very differently based on the amount of information and weight that information is given, right? With different audiences. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a matter of what I think is a designer in that case, right? It's a question of who, whether or not the audience gives a damn. Yes. Like there, there is a, there is a thing of like, I want to know what the general chances of what I'm about to do, whether it'll succeed or whatever, right? But that said, as a designer, can't you take that upon yourself to say, I know what the probabilities are, so I'm going to use them in my design in this way. Yes, absolutely. And people who do not care about them are going to interact with this. So it still needs to produce results that, that are relevant to them. And people who care about them are going to interact with this. So do I make a transparent, oh, by the way, here's a probability chart, right, where some games do. Like, right. here's your chart for people who care. Well, I think that's part of what, what what's essential in game design and, and the extent to which we care as designers, especially in something like an RPG, is communicating to the players that they understand when they are at the bottom of a hill versus when they're at the top of a hill, when the odds are in their favor versus when their odds are not in their favor, right. without necessarily having to understand the math of it. And the big thing to me is that you... So we have to find ways to make them care, even if the math is boring, so that they will understand what's at stake. And sometimes it's as simple as, as uh, 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 having, you know, bonuses always be positive numbers and penalties always be negative numbers, or not having penalties at all, mm. or whatever, however it is that you express right. it, so that, that comes through. But the other thing about that to me is that you can never, I don't, I, I'm beginning to believe that, that making even tabletop games now, when anybody who's playing your game might have a tablet or a cell phone on them, there is no obfuscation of that. You can't have a game that relies on obfuscation of the math or that relies on the fiction alone because anybody can say, well, what are my chances on 2d6 of getting a 9 or higher? 
Sure, right? I mean, and, and on the one hand, you can't, you don't design for the fact that everybody's going to do that because that's not fun anyway. But my point is, is that they're, they're, they're ref, some of the refugees are gone. And that is somebody actually going to run that number at the table? It's not impossible. It's much easier to do now than it was before. Right. If you have like a complicated set of mechanics or there's something that has a lot of interactions, then yeah, the, the ability to hide, if you will, something in the math is not there. I'm trying to think of, of an example that would be closer to fair game, and I have to, I'd have to leave like a classic fantasy role-playing F20 D&D example to do it, but I'll use a D&D example, just, which is if you have a monster that represents itself as being unbeatable, and it turns out it's not, and it turns out it's not by a huge margin, and it's actually a, not a pushover, then you have a real design problem. Uh, uh, but I think that's fascinating that I've seen where there are monsters that are presumably unbeatable and were when, when, when campaigns were individually siloed. Everybody thinks this monster is super tough. But you get on the internet and you find out that fully half or more of people who played against this monster in D&D encounters beat it no problem and then just moved on to the next, that, that the climax of the adventure didn't work. Yeah. Some of that is information that, that because of the randomness factor, we don't have as designers until it's hit the audience oh, and it's yeah. played by, by a thousand more people. Right. Yeah. There's, there are always situations where things that you are pretty sure or are sure are, are very unlikely happen in close sequence. And then that becomes a, a thing about the game or something that you were like, oh, that's that's like not very likely, but I'm not that concerned about it. Turns out that if it happens multiple times, it does become a concern. Say something right. where, I don't know, there's a 15% chance of some huge penalty happening when you roll some dice and then you get a penalty to your next roll. Oh, no, turns out that's a death spiral. Right. 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 But if it was like a 3% chance, then that might be something that only happens so rarely that it becomes dramatic. But it, it, it's interesting to me also how that interacts with the notion that if you have a 10% chance of something terrible happening in a, in a game or an adventure, I, I, I'm thinking, for example, of things that I've seen that I've learned from watching um, Eternal Lies hit a playtest or a, an audience that was bigger than the playtest group. We had great playtesters on that game, on that, on that adventure, on that campaign. But there are things that we're like, well, so th this is unlikely to happen. But if it happens to the majority, or even not, not a majority, but if a ten percent, a ten percent likelihood of a thing happens, fifteen or twenty percent of the time in actual play, just from a fluke, because again, the long enough number of rolls hasn't occurred. That's kind of on the one hand, that's sort of out of, out of our control. That's just a fluke, and or at least the ones reported on the internet. Let's say that's a fluke. But at the same time, what that always points to me is the question of why is there a chance of something happening that you don't want to have happen? Or why is there a chance of something happening that is essential or uh, vital to the gameplay experience, right? So the question becomes, when is it okay to absolve players of making decisions? And when is it, you know, to let the dice do it? And when are we almost, uh, when are we dodging our own responsibilities designer by leaving it to the dice, right? Like this part of goes again to what a game is about and how it is about it is what is volatile in the game, what is random and how we make those decisions when we choose to address the dice or invoke the dice. That idea of the the, the extremes is, is super yeah. important, right? Whenever you're looking at some at some at some dice and you're you know running some probability on them, curve, pool, whatever, you kind of want to see what happens on the ends. There's a there's kind of a classic notion of on a on a bell curve, uh, cluster the like bad stuff or negative stuff or or weak stuff at the bottom end. Like because higher is better, right. and then like put the stuff, the average stuff in the middle, and then the cool stuff at the top end, and then you get like random medieval town generators that end up with like completely full of grocers, and then like one wizard's tower or something like that, right? <laughs> right. And it's like that is mapping some kind of of logical sense and a certain approach onto a bell curve, but then when you zoom out from that and say wait a second, this means most of the time all my boring stuff happens. Right. And some of the time, and it doesn't matter, like the math, it, it doesn't matter if it's a two or a 12, right? Those are both statistically identical right. On, right. on 2D6. So, you know, my, my two and my 12 are equally least likely to get my coolest thing and my weirdest, craziest, most evil thing. Right. Right. Those will almost never come up. Right, and then all my boring stuff will come up a lot. Is that what you want for your game? Or you know, there's an approach to invert that, put all the cool stuff in the middle and the boring stuff at the ends. But then why do you have boring stuff? Exactly. Why why is there boring stuff on that list at all? Right. right? And then it's like, yeah. why is it a? And then if you're like, if you just want a, a mix of things, then why is it a bell curve? And you see a lot of 
I think a lot of random tables go to you know go to a single die because right. you you want that feeling of unpredictability uh, and you don't want to really privilege. And then you're actually not privileging anything. You can you can cluster your things thematically in those numbers just however you want. Right. But again, Which is more of a mnemonic than anything else at that right. point. Yeah. So that's so that's an example of when you want a, a curved distribution versus a linear distribution. Volatility, randomness, and design. I love that term volatility. I'm stealing that from James Ernest here in this case. But is that um, volatility in game design isn't necessarily just about randomness. It's about the intera- interaction of randomness with everything else in the game, right? And it has to do with creating opportunities for the unexpected. Yeah, so one of the things that dice do, one of the reasons to use them, is that they disclaim responsibility from a person to something inanimate. If you take certain decisions and and make them dice-driven, that can be a way to take something that could be a potentially difficult social situation, like your character falls off a bridge into the raging waters and moves it to something that is that is uh doesn't have a a a moral or interpersonal dimension right dice are 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 they're amoral they're they're agnostic they are neither right they they don't pick sides necessarily right unless you design your systems to to do so right because they're they're a determiner right not just a they don't actually make decisions but they like it's that notion of random selection i love that phrase randomly choose to do a thing well then which is it (laughs) <laughs> is it random or is it a decision? Is it a selection? Mm-hmm. But that's the close we have. I was actually looking this up and this is, I can't, I'm not going to, I don't know all the sources involved in this, but as an example, uh, uh, one of the early things in game design of yore, right, was the notion that our di- randomness is so hard for us, for people, humans, to completely get our heads around that for the longest time, there were still arguments about whether or not, like, are dice random or is that the will of something? Is that the force of something, right? So dice as divination tools the 20-sider that you see sometimes comes up online. Uh, the Roman 20-sided uh, yeah, the uh, polyhedron stone has, all the, yeah, yeah, stone that, one. That has all the symbols and sigils and stuff all over it. There's a notion as to whether or not dice are making a decision. So in other words, this notion of, of passing the decision-making off to the die is before. That comes before in human history and in human design of stuff, the notion of how probability actually works. Right, is this notion that I am absolved. And you see this when people go to the movies and they can't decide what to see and they flip a coin. Or when people are... You know, so who goes who who goes first in in, in in a ball game, right? We flip a coin. That we pass these decisions off to something that feels neutral, or at the very least feels outside the two participants who are trying to make this decision. James Ernest says that there are three basic elements, and I tend to agree with them, but I, what I like about RPGs is that we can riff on these on the fly. And I just want to cite these again as an impetus to get people to go read the article, uh, because we're, I'm not just going to read it to you here, but that as opposed to, we often, I used to think that there was luck and there was skill, and there's still, that talk comes up a lot. But if you think in James's terms, there are, there's aptitude, play, and luck, and that, and they each can be dialed high or low, or to zero or to maximum in different games. And examples are, that aptitude is the skill at playing the game. It is actually the experience of the player, uh, the experience level of the player. Play are the individual decisions that are made in the moment, which even a skillful player might make a bad decision during play. And then luck is luck, right? Luck is what is outside the player's control. And having those three different, even if the player decides to engage that luck, having those as three different notions, I find is very useful when thinking about how to engage the dice in a game design, or as a GM for that matter, because it, it goes back to the question of what is what does the player do? What does the character do? What is it that I want to reinforce? What is the game about? And why is the game's subject covered by more by luck than by aptitude or more by play than by luck or what have you? You see in a lot of discussions about games, the idea of system mastery. Yeah. Right. And that kind of is what that aptitude branch yeah. is about to me, where once a player gains experience with the game and, and gains experience with interacting with the dice right. and, and knows what the probabilities are and has internalized a lot of the, the things that they can assume will happen and things that they know they have to make happen, mm-hmm. that's a level of play that a game can, can reward. Or sometimes that can be where a game... Uh, stops being uh, as rewarding an experience because you you have this feeling that you found out all there is to find out. Right, right, right. And I think uh, dice complexity and using using randomness mindfully can aid in that system mastery aspect. Where if the dice 
keep things from getting too static in the long term, maybe that's a way to extend kind of the, the play cycle of a game for, for people who do have that strong aptitude element. I, like, I always love how that applies to players who have essentially figured out a game or even just figured out one level of their character in some, you know, like a D&D or Dungeon World example. But they figured out, okay, I've got my, my cleric figured out at level 10. I know what the, every round I know what I'm going to do. I know what the best play is. But the fiction is drawing me forward. I want to keep playing. So that even though I'm a little bored in this combat, or I'm a little bored in the next combat, then when I hit level 11, something new, new stuff can happen. Or the fiction is going to start compelling me to make decisions that I wouldn't make before. Or to use spells I might not otherwise use, or whatever, right? To riff on the math, or to find all those nooks and crannies. And so you, you can find dice mechanics, you can create dice mechanics that are very glossy and highly effective, but only have kind of three or four outputs or you can have uh, dice mechanics that have, you know, like imagine it was a D20 in each of those. Can imagine, if you will, a, a Apocalypse World game that was a flat curve, that was just a flat line. You rolled 1D20 and it was just a random table for each class that when I roll a 2, this happens. Or this or that happens. When I roll a 5, this or that happens. When I roll a 20, this or that happens, right? That's not, I mean, it would not be fun, I don't think. It would be, the bookkeeping would be problematic and the predictability might not work in your favor. But the unpredictability would also be interesting in the sense that you'd be like, look at all the stuff. I've never rolled a 19. I can't wait to find out. I can't wait to see a 19 in action. I can read it right here on the list, but I want to see it interact with the fiction. And then you look at something like Worldwide Wrestling or Apocalypse World or Dungeon World where, in theory, there are only three outcomes, really, or four maybe, right, depending on the game. But there are three different ways that it cuts the results of the die. But what can happen inside those three spaces that are created by those outcomes between failure, failure to cost, or kind of half failure or outright success gets fascinating. Well, that's, yeah, and that's the, the Apocalypse World engine uses that basic 2d6 plus bonus bell curve very intelligently. Uh, so so the, the, the mixed result, the middle result, right? If you, so you roll 2d6, you usually add some stat modifier. If you roll six or less, that's, that, that, that's not good for you generally, or it gives the, the GM an opportunity to do some, some bad stuff to you. Seven to nine is a mixed result or a partial success or some kind of, you get this, but choose or that kind of thing. And then a 10 plus is like, you are, you, you did great. You have some very positive outcome or, or mixed, mixed outcome, but generally in your favor. Like that seven to nine, it's seven to nine. It's not six to nine. It's not, right. it's not seven to ten. It's not six to eight, right? Because right. it's saying, you know, a on on average, you know, a, a average person or whatever who has no bonus, who's just doing stuff, is slightly favored to not do poorly. Right. Yeah. It means right. that most often things will proceed in an interesting way. Yes. And yeah, and that's the thing. Most often things will proceed most often you'll get that mixed success. But as characters improve and as players attain system mastery and know how to apply bonuses and stack bonuses and powers or moves, yeah, yeah, and all that stuff, um, depending on the game, later episodes or later sessions of gameplay tend to see competent characters doing what they do very well with the occasional catastrophic failure. It kind of right. moves. It moves out of the that mixed result range more into the very positive range. Sometimes opens up even better, you know, more new stuff because you are kind of out of mixed stuff to do. But because they're dice, every so often you do roll that two, and you know it, it is the the crash is that much worse. Um, and worse in this case meaning dramatic. Dramatic, yes, yeah, is yeah. is much more dramatically problematic for your character. Uh, and I think this is a, this is something that, that is closer to your history than to mine, but is that notion of there's kind of a classic set of terminology about where the fortune, where the randomness goes. Fortune at the beginning, you'll see this sometimes online in, some, in a variety of great essays. You'll see it contested by other great essays, and it's it's it itself is kind of volatile. But there's a lot of great information to be drawn from it and to riff on still. I think in the life the lifetime of this thinking. But is do, does the dice roll go at the beginning? Does it go in the middle? Does it go at the end? And what is how does that change what we're representing? And I bring this up now because. Like with the, the town, the random town table or whatnot, the question is, if you're trying to model reality, then you make some of the most outlandish stuff rare. And if you're trying to model different interesting things happening, then you can make everything completely outlandish from top to bottom on that table. And some of that's genre and some of that's what you're, the vibe you're after. And, and those are design decisions. There's not necessarily a right way to do that. But then similarly, when you introduce volatility or randomness into an exchange of play, 
different things happen depending on where you put that information. And I love, even in games like D&D and Dungeon World and almost any of my own games, moving that around, not just in the design, but as a GM. Where an example that I always use, and I got yelled at, I got, I got attacked on the internet for this at one point, which was moving the social role to the beginning of a scene instead of the end of a scene so that rather than making a great speech and finding out that it didn't work, I roll at the beginning and I add my diplomacy to my diplomacy modifier or whatever it is and I find out that I did great and so I describe or I dramatize or I portray what a great successful diplomatic speech looks like for my character or I roll really badly and I say okay well so how, how does my character screw up what does that look like in this case what is it what is a dramatic example of my character putting his foot in his mouth or just aiming a great dramatic speech at the wrong target or whatever it is and that's an example of fortune in the beginning where traditionally I think uh, uh, customarily in history, it has been noted that what a player does is they say what they're going to do, and then they roll to see if it, ha if it works or if it happens. Yeah, so that's a great example um, of a lot of things. One is, so there's no, there, there's absolutely no difference between if you're rolling a, a single die a single time between waiting, like if you rolled at point A or point A plus five minutes, there's no, <laughs> there's no difference there. Uh, there's no difference between rolling it and keeping it under your hand right? And then revealing it. Right, the die doesn't know. Right, the die doesn't know. Rolling dice ahead of time and having a, a list of numbers that you pre-generated and crossing them off as you use them. Like, those are all statistically, probabilistically exactly the same as far as I, I know. The caveat of maybe there's some weird math thing that I don't know about, about, I don't know, observed. The earth and gravimetric interference. Yeah, yeah. The, like, the observation of a die changes its volatility or something no so 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 there's so there's that element but then you say you know this is a, a, a contentious point right because of where that fortune element that randomness hooks into the overall flow of the game the players expectations of mm -hmm. what they can and can't do um and other mechanical stuff right i'm gonna I'm gonna back up for one second so to to restate what you're talking about with the in the middle at the end in my design trajectory we talked about uh so fortune as, a, as an inclusive term of, of kind of any randomizer so in this case dice so fortune fortune at the beginning fortune in the middle fortune at the end of what of any interaction that you want that fortune to affect right so that could be a scene level thing where it, you roll at the beginning of a scene and that tells you information that you use for the rest of it it could be like in your example where it's like a, a speech or an action it could be very granular like when you when you swing your sword Right, right. Like it is, it is, it is agnostic as to the scale of what you're doing. And that fortune itself could be multiple interactions. You could be rolling dice and someone else rolls dice and right. you see what happens. And then that affects the outcome. It could right? be attack and damage. It could be from the same side, but at two steps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So fortune at the beginning, you roll your dice you're like, oh, I did really well. So here's the stirring speech that my character makes fortune in the middle. I'm going to make a speech. Okay, what is it? You know, like maybe there's some other... I think classically this is what happens, right? I'm going to make this speech. And you start. And you, you make your stirring speech. Or, or you get to, a, to, a, to, a, to an op opportune point where you're like, okay, this isn't quite finally resolved yet. Let's find out how it goes. Then you roll dice. And then you say, oh, I rolled well. So here's, my, here's, my, here, here's how I wind it up with this big, you know, punchy ending. Here's my stirring conclusion. Right. Or, oh, I did badly. Oh, well, here's where I put my foot in my mouth. And then at the end would be, you make your speech. Great, you made it. Let's, let's see how it went. You know, roll the dice. Oh, you did great. The dice are standing in for different factors or actors in the game world or in the fiction or in the physics, depending of the game world in, in each of those circumstances, right? Uh, as an example, in, the, in this kind of classic what my character says diplomatic situation in the middle, when you have the, the die roll in the middle of the action, it often represents what I say. It helps inform tell me, telling me what it is that I said. And when you put it at the end, it often represents the person I'm talking to, the crowd or the king or the queen or whoever's listening, and whether or not they respond favorably to what I said. So there's the notion that retconning is bad, which is not necessarily true, but is often implicit in some of this idea, which is that I said it. Therefore, once I roll the die, we're interpreting or anchoring or, or resolving, we are rendering what I said into the fiction and finding out what the reaction is. And this is important to me because the rendering engine, us, the simultaneous creative participant in the audience, get to decide so often 
where the seams are in these motion in these parts. Right? And there, and then I bring that up because there's there's a skill game that's that's often underappreciated in this, which is especially in Fortune in the Middle, where you have the die roll in the middle, where somebody says, "Okay, hang on, before you keep going, now I want to find out what the reaction is." Well, where is the middle? Especially if we haven't heard the whole speech yet, there's a skill, a dramatic skill, a writerly or actorly skill in saying, "And now I roll the die, and something exciting will happen." And that skill interacts with the randomness. Only in the sense, like, it, it, it doesn't interact with how the die's going to roll, right? It interacts with the final rendering of the scene. Because if the player says, no, I have one more thing I want to say, and the GM's like, nope, tough, roll. We'll find out whether or not you say it. Save it in case it does goes well or bad or whatever, right? These scenes affect play such that they demonstrate how there are almost invisible modifiers or effects that surround the, the, what the game is modeling that are important but are not part of the randomizer. The die is going to do its thing. And that's part of the beauty and terror of, of the dice roll, right? You're, you're, you, you can use that decision to create space for the other techniques that you want to use. Right. For example, if you are like in a, in a uh, burning wheel duel of wits where there's a whole mechanic about bringing in skills that help you, like uh, uh, the forking in skills. Right. If you're talking to the dwarf king and you happen to have the brewery skill, you're like, oh, well, the dwarves are brewers. I'm going to bring in my brewery knowledge to like get them on my side or whatever, right? So that's something where you're as you as you progress through the scene, you're accessing other mechanical things to help you out your your role later. So by doing fortune either in the middle or at the end, that's one opportunity to to do that kind of progressive. I do a thing and here's a bonus. I do a thing and here's an extra die. I do a thing and and someone else gets to get in on this or whatever. While doing it at the beginning, right, it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, and we have these scene level mechanics where if you do well at the beginning. Then you have maybe this this currency to spend on doing other stuff, but we know it's right. going to end up in this way, that kind of thing. And this all contributes to notions of information for the player, information for the character. So in other words, if I roll at the beginning, my character doesn't know that. I, the player, know that. That's information I have. And if I see the die roll, let's say me and the GM see it, but the other players don't, that creates suspense for a portion of the table. That then it is my just kind of skill game job almost to use to dramatize this in a way that respects what the die did. If I do it in the middle, actually I'm going to come back to the middle and do it last. If I do it at the end, the suspense is equal for all of us because we don't know if the die is going to agree with me or not. If it's going to back up my play. So the skill comes in at one level of, of portrayal or, or, or of role playing. And then we find out suspense in a suspense filled moment if the die agrees with me. Uh, there's an example in the middle which actually... Um, the Dragon Age, the Fantasy Age system, which powers the Dragon Age tabletop role-playing game and Titan's Grave and stuff, the, the, the TV show with Will Wheaton. It's a fascinating example of where the fortune goes, and you can see this in, in Will's show. Because very often, like in a lot of RPGs, you can kind of move the lever so that you're, it, scene by scene, putting fortune at the beginning or in the middle or at the end, and the mechanics still function. Uh, but because that game is a system where it can generate stunt points where if uh, 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 you get doubles, then this one special die says, okay, you have four or five or you know one to six stunt points to spend on doing cool stuff. Well, you can't spend those before you know you have them. You can't, and it's kind of, if you're like me, uh, I can't plan on getting them because then I'll, I'll ruin my chances, which is, of course, not how it works, but that's, I'm a human being with dice. This is how I function. And so once you find out that you have five stunt points, it moves a certain amount of fortune to the end, regardless of whether or not you put the die roll at the beginning or the middle or, or what you thought was the very end. Now this new information comes up, which can be very exciting or can be almost confounding where you're like, oh, shoot, shoot, I only have, I have, I have one minute to decide what to do with all these stunt points. I'm going to do the following things with them. I'll spend them, th I'll spend them thus. But they remain a great example of information coming to the player the character didn't have because the player didn't have it. And it creates another... A situation where that information, because right, the characters never see the dice, and by and large, they may see what the dice represent, and they may not. If the notion is that the die roll represents how the wind is going to catch an arrow before it can hit the orc chieftain, or if it represents my skill as an archer, or if it represents the orc chieftain's complete obliviousness to there being an archer behind him, or whatever it is, right? We don't that what the die is physically or dramatically modeling in the in the game, and I, I don't want to say simulating, but is modeling representing in the game. How we choose to engage the dice in that game can vary wildly. And then again, we get to make the decision at the adventure level and at the scene level and at the turn level, depending on the game. We may get to reevaluate those decisions. Most games have a number of layers of, of resolution. Yeah. Uh, whether they're called out as such or are implicit or kind of depend on player skill or, or whatever. And so, yeah, you can mindfully, I think that's a great example of looking at one core mechanic basically right. that kind of can operate in different modes at different times depending on how the dice fall 
there's a, a, a quick, because we haven't really talked, we've, we've talked about percentages, but we haven't talked about percentile dice. And there's a little thing I want to mention because I've been carrying this around for a long time. This is a freebie for the game designers in the audience and all of the nascent game designers in the audience, by which I mean all of you. So like in Call of Cthulhu, your, your skills are percentages. So I have a 40% in spot hidden, or I have a 30% in cryptography. That does not mean that 30% of the time I can solve a, a, a riddle, that I can decrypt something. This has always, always made me angry because it's not actually, because we won't roll the dice often enough for, the, for that 30% to reveal itself. It means that there's a 30% chance in any given roll that I will not make an ass out of myself in, in a lot of games that use percentile systems. Certainly in games in which they have a, bina a binary situation with the percentile dice in which not succeeding means something really bad happens. Those games for me cause paralysis as a player where I say, well, no, I don't, if I don't, I have worse than a 50-50 chance. That's the same, that's not being skilled at a thing. You would rather arrange your character's experience such that you don't roll right. rather than right. roll dice because you're looking at it and you, you know that you are more likely to blow it. Right. And, 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 and the system that I immediately worked on, and I have a three or four games that I have versions of the system in, um, but that I want to just say out loud to see what other people will do with it, is that when you turn that into a success rate, which is to say that if I have a 50%, and we see this actually in Storium, when I worked on Storium, there's some of this in there, is that uh, uh, if you have a 50% success rate, that means half the time I succeed. That means that if I have, uh, let's say, 10 rolls of the dice or 10 tokens, I have five success tokens and five failure tokens. And maybe I have to pull a certain number out of a hat, or maybe I have to, maybe I decide when to spend them. But the point is now the percentiles start to feel like what we think percentiles do. I have a 50% chance my character over the however long the lifetime of this character is will, will get closer to a 50% success rate. And there, this is a space that RPGs have not done a, lot, done a lot with that I would like to see more done with, is the notion that a 70% chance is not a 70% chance of success. It is 70% of the time my character is actually good at this thing that I said she's supposed to be good at. <laughs> that's a great, uh, that's actually a great lead into something I wanted to talk about, which was because it's all probability, you, you can transform your mechanics into other things right. once you find uh, a, like some kind of probability that you are comfortable with and that you want to work with and, and have be present in your game. That's a great example of saying, like, we could do this with dice, but if, if I have a 50% skill, or you could do this, this token thing and then you're limiting it over a lifetime, right. or do you just bring that to a coin flip, right? Right, And you flip a bunch of coins. Yeah, and that's essentially what like Lady Blackbird is. Once mm -hmm. you have dice with a 50-50 chance, it's a bunch of coin tosses and you're doing right. Pascal's Triangle again. So Google Pascal's Triangle, everybody. We have not even really touched on the idea of granularity, which I think is really important. This again may have a specific mathy definition but how I understand granularity, right, is just saying, how much information can you get out of the scale of numbers that you're working with? Right. Right. You know, a D4 only has four outcomes. It is less granular than a D6, which gives you six, which is less than D8, which gives you eight, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to me to think about, like, what are the actual range of options that you're getting out of your dice doing for you in your game? And can that be achieved with more or fewer dice or side right. sizes and sides? Does that make sense? Yeah, I I often think of this nowadays. I realize in terms of resolution, not as a resolution mechanic, but but I find that granularity is often harder to grasp because I think it sounds like it may mean things or contain things, and I suppose it does mean things other than resolution. But I think about it as gra like graphics resolution, right? Is that if you have two pixels, you only have so many possible outcomes, or so many different ways that you can you know paint those pixels. If you have 720p, mm. your image is sharper. And right. if you have 1080p, your image is sharper still. And so there's a, there's a, there's a metaphor there, I think, between resolution and granularity, which is high resolution is more granular. But the question is, is that in like a video game or in television or in a movie, more pixels is almost always better. Right. I was going to... And that's not necessarily the case. Right. There's a limiting right. factor. There's, there's diminishing returns. For an example, back to percentage system... Yeah. If you're doing a percentage system and you're, you know, you have one to a hundred to work with, but there's only four broad categories that those hundred numbers fall into, right? Like some kind of critical, uh, non-critical failure, you know, success, critical hit right. kind of spread. Are your hundred numbers that you could potentially get out of your dice doing anything for you more than the four numbers you get out of a D4? 
Right. Yeah, if, if, if each of those four chunks is exactly 25%, then you are essentially rolling a d4, only using two dice and having to discern, remember which category you're in. I mean, it's easier to just roll a d4 and get one of those four results. And this is actually interesting, I think, before before even the drilling down into some of that granularity, is just the notion that one of the reasons like I might go with a, a percentage system is because percentiles are immediately intuitive in a particular genre or in a particular flavor of game in a way that the D4 might not be. And also, to me, there's the, the factor of six-siders are the most common dice. 20-siders are probably the second most common dice, and then 10-siders. Mm-hmm. I know more people that have 10-siders than have four-siders. And that's not necessarily a deal-breaker, but it is one of the reasons that I might think of to go with, to start going down the avenue of something like, despite granularity, going down percentiles. But I always have to keep in mind, is this going to be better with a four-sider or with an eight-sider? You know, how many different right. ways do I have to tick? Do I, do I want to be able to move the, the boundary line so that, mm-hmm. you know, there's only a 10% chance of the first category, and then I want there to be a 40% chance in the second category, whatever, right? Right. Yeah, it's it, it comes down to, I mean, it's it's actually, a, when you start thinking about it, it's a really nice little encapsulation of, of the basic design problem, which is you can't serve every master, right? right. You have to make trade-offs. So if D12s are going to give you your perfect range results, perfect, you know, all the granularity you need, all the stuff you want, but do you want people to go out and have to get a special die that a lot of people actually don't have or only have one of, you know, so that's a, that comes down to a nice little, like, that is a design problem. Like, where do you make that trade-off? Or do you make it 2D6 or 3D4 or right, whatever? Right. And go for something a little more common and just not have your perfect curve have like a little, it's a little different. I mean, I often just default to D6s unless I come up with a compelling reason to use something else. Right. Because I know the the math pretty intuitively or I know how to look it up very easily. People have them and they give you lots of different stuff. Uh, these are all reasons why like Dark uses a regular poker deck and mm-hmm. six-sided dice is not only because they were easy to find and because I was going to go through a lot of them, uh, but because they're easy for players to find and because I know the math on six-siders more intuitively than I know the math on eight-siders or ten-siders. Even the ten-siders are pretty uh, stable dice. Uh, and then a 52-deck card is also, like, there's a lot written about them. You can look up a lot of the stuff for a card deck because gambling, because right. all those percentages have all been calculated out for poker and whatever, taking tricks and, like, all the other things. And as soon as you start calculating new cards, as soon as you start trying to design, you know, Magic or L5R or something, you say, okay, well, what if I had 53 cards and now everything is a variable during the design process? And you can move everything in every direction, and it's it, the, the blank canvas gets bigger and blanker. It gets into a rabbit hole. Yeah, you're giving yourself a bigger problem to deal with, which yeah. you may or may not want to, want to do. The other thing uh, that I wanted to make sure to talk about was that we can get lots of information out of dice that isn't just the numbers that they roll. Absolutely. Something that I do a lot, and actually I do a lot in early designs, and they often get worked out and are not in later designs, but is, is, is looking at different colors of dice to like code them to different right. things. You know, you have a pool that has two or three different colors and those mean different things or attached to different attributes or uh, represent different characters' influences or whatever. And that gives you another, an additional dimension of information. Why is this two different from that two? Right. Yeah. So yeah, like the numbers uh, give you one kind of one vector of information. Uh, you can use colors to sort dice into different sets. You can use numbers to make sets instead of add, or basically turn them into cards in a way and take tricks. You know, mm-hmm. by doing sets of dice that are right. the same number. I mean, look at uh, look at fate dice, which are six siders that just that just recoded one to two, three to four, and five to six right. into pluses, minuses, and blanks. Right. They're yeah. they're functional d threes because that's a physical object that is hard to manufacture. Right. <laughs> but but and then that that just changing that form factor, even though they're d threes, which you can you know use any d six as a d three, uh, turns that into a process by which the pairing or the identifying, it's a UI or a UX thing, really, right? Is that it changes the readability of the dice. Here's actually a thing about information in six-siders that I found is interesting. When we're doing Always Never Now, you can use any dice at all because each dice just generates a 50-50 result. And I always had it as evens odds. Any die that has even number of sides you can use for this result, get a positive or, or get a success or a, a miss. But people don't like evens and odds. In playtesting, everybody decided, can I just do one to three and four to six? And I'm like, okay, sure, huh. yeah. 
because everybody's using six siders anyway. And you can, you can just flip coins if you wanted to. All it is is a 50-50 chance of each individual thing coming up with heads or tails. But for me, it was always evens and odds was easiest because you could just use any kind of die. But I found, I think almost to every single playtester, the most adamant defense I got of using evens and odds was somebody not caring either way. Nobody was like, yes, I prefer evens odds. It was only me. It wasn't a decision as a designer that I wanted to, it wasn't a hill I wanted to die on. So I just said, all right, great. So then, yeah, because like three, the, four to six. the aesthetic of that and the cleanliness of that is, you know, is worth saying, do it this way. Or if you're using not d6s, just do evens odds or whatever, you know, as a, as a sidebar. And then like uh, uh, Dungeons and Crawl Classics, like turns weird dice into an asset, right? Where it's like, that's one of the selling points is you can use all your weird dice. Right, right. You can use right. your D13s and like that kind of thing. That's like an aesthetic choice for that game that works with its overall kind of feel at the table and everything. Yeah, those kind of uh, uh, choices, I mean, all the different ways, <clears throat> the, the different legitimate and fair ways to make decisions about what dice are going to be used and how you're going to extract information from them is one of my favorite parts of the early stage of a design, even though I find that for stability and for teaching a game, I very often fall back. I, I, I end up not wandering as far from, from standard procedure in any new game as I expect I'm going to when I start out. If I yeah. start off, I say, you're going to roll 3d12 and you're going to need this number. One number is going to represent altitude and another one's going to represent the number of hours you've been awake or whatever it is, right? Very often I find that I have these crazy notions about how those dice might intersect or which I had a, is, uh, a is version of Odyssey. Is this for your, your jet fighter sleep deprivation game? All of my games are on some level about sleep dep and flying planes. Yes, it's true. <laughs> the, the early version of Odyssey, which I did for Game Chef, had six siders in which you had to match faces together. Mm-hmm. Right, so you would push two different dice together to be well. I have two five, so I can push those together, and you know, not like as a set, but like you would have to turn the die and literally set the five on the five, Mm -hmm. and that would then show a different number on top and all this other stuff. And it was kind of interesting. It had nothing to do with what the game was actually about by the end of it, and all of that stuff got sanded off into very familiar D six properties over time to make the game that the game was becoming more uh, easier to learn. Yeah, sometimes it's 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 a lot of fun to like play with a wacky die thing. And then at the end of the day, it ends up whatever the actually looking at the probabilities and what you're actually getting out of the experience and stuff. Well, this is basically rolling a couple of dice, cognitive load that people need to carry at the table, and all the uh, story stuff, pacing, prep, like whatever, all the other stuff going on at the table. You only have so much bandwidth to deal with these physical objects, and a lot of the time, simpler is better because it's not the, the complexity isn't getting you anything at the table. Yeah, if it's just slowing down and distracting from what the game is actually about. In some games, it's actually fascinating to say, well, I generated these, this dice pool, and then I have a tense tactical moment where I decide what to do with this three and what to do with that six, and whether it's worth splitting that six into two threes or whatever. But unless what you specifically want is like a slow-mo sequence, that you specifically want things to slow down for a second and have a moment of the game freeze in time, mm-hmm. where you say, okay, so we're going to just sit in this spot for a second when the sword is in mid-swing or the or the, 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 the rocket is just coming off the launch pad, whatever it is, slowing the game down is almost almost always, in my experience, that happens by accident in the middle phase of a design rather than something that I aim for. It's something that I'll play a game and I'll find that the math works, and then when we get to the table, I say, okay, this is going slower than I want. We're getting less play in per session than everybody's going to want. Yeah, I would say that the, the, the die game itself yeah. needs to be worth playing. Right. In order for those kind of more finicky mechanical procedures to like kind of work for me. Like in Dogs in the Vineyard has a very strategic dice game as the basic resolution for anything that's that's uh, that's actually meaningful in play. And that game is an interesting game to play as a strategy game. In addition to the fact that it's hooked into the fiction and ends up having consequences for the story on the back end and reinforces the action as you play it and all that stuff. Right. But, you know, and, and for some people that is a difficult part of play that is too, too finicky. Right. Even though it is, in my opinion, like very well, well thought out, well designed, integrated, useful, all that stuff. In, uh, in Castle Falkenstein, which was, uh, or Falkenstein, you have a, a it's, it uses playing cards too, right? And it was one of the first RPGs that I encountered that did. And there's a sword fighting, a dueling mechanic in that game, which is completely, un- it's a mini game. It's completely unlike anything else in the game, but it still uses cards. And it has an attack rests kind of a thing that is designed to create a back and forth sense of timing and choices and, and everything, which is really, I always thought was kind of neat, but was really well encapsulated by one of my players long, long ago who had said, yeah, this is, this is interesting, but I don't want my character's ability to be a cool swords person to be dependent on my skill at this card game. 
And that was just set and match. That was well, you win. That's that's a that's a great point. This, that, <laughs> that that is this is does this does not reward your character. This rewards you for thinking about this card game vaguely in a way that a swords person thinks about being like they're they're in parallel, but they're not. It was yeah. a poor substitute for just saying I want my character to be able to win these duels mm-hmm. and to be great at it. And then in addition to being able to draw the right card or roll the right die, I have to. I have to develop a skill just so that I can essentially make this expression of my character accurate, even though I wrote it down on the sheet the same as everybody else did. And nobody else needs a minigame to, to talk the Duke into not going to war or whatever, but I have to have this extra layer of complexity just to play the character that I designed. There's an understood nature, not just in RPGs, but in so many tabletop games that luck, the luck of the die is a neutral and understood arbiter it doesn't favor me or favor you even though we will talk like it does half the time but luck is uh, a, a pre-accepted element of my interface with my character and it and oftentimes it gets pushed into whether it, that luck is, is attributed to the environment to physics to my character to the gods whatever it is in the fiction in mm-hmm. the game itself um, which is why i think mm-hmm. that, that that question is is still so pertinent here right is that that notion that luck is an inherent part of a game of these sorts in a way that, I mean, Amber is proven isn't necessarily the case. You can have, or Undying does a great job of, right? You don't need dice to be rolled. Well, there's a difference between luck and uncertainty. And what dice do is that they create uncertainty through the use of luck, of randomness. And, and it, apparently neutrally is the yes. thing. When, when in a lot of cases, I think what they do is they just time shift the decision making. Because the number of times, for example, that I might use a feat in D&D or that I might use the skill points I spent in a World of Darkness character or whatever may not be a stable curve. It may not be representative. Like I may put points into a skill and I may get one chance to use it. Right. That's not unlike having a limited resource and spending it. But yeah. I don't know beforehand when I spend those skill points how many times, how many rolls I'm going to get out of the skill points. Right. Yeah. And that kind of gets gets back to what we were talking about earlier, how you don't see the distribution of your, of right. your probabilities, right? It makes me think of um, the experience of making a character and being like, I want to be good at these things, mm-hmm. right? So you mechanically emphasize them, you give them good points or your best scores or whatever. I want to be good at those things. I don't care about being good at those things. And you're essentially saying, I'm hedging my bets in this area. And this area, I'm, I'm leaving, flapping in the wind. This other area. Yeah, let's see, you know, what to, the winds of fortune will blow me around when it comes to my diplomacy skill. Right. Some days I'll be great and some, some days I'll be terrible. But, you know, my sword fighting, I want to be able to depend on it. So I'm going to shore that up with this, these points. And then there's a tipping point, potentially, where you can create an assured outcome. If a 20 is always a success and you give yourself 19 points in something, then you're always going to succeed or whatever. And right. make that part of how characters work. Or you can go more in like the fate direction where it's like just pick stuff that you're always good at. Right. Stuff that will always matter. Stuff that you'll always have the ability to excel at if you choose to do to do so. Like the dice really aren't going to change that in fate. Right. Well, and they can only change it by so much. They, right. they can only. That's the interesting thing with uh, fate or feng shui is that a system that puts your that you're hedging your bet because you are adding to the floor. Right. Mm-hmm. So that the die can only lift you past that point or fate or feng shui in which you're establishing the baseline mm-hmm. and the dice can push you up or down from that. They can subtract from your from your outcome or add your outcome. Mm-hmm. They do that for a sense of reliability because in fate, right, for fate dice, the statistical variance is that, is that you're not going to go too far off your center line. And so, if, if I set my center line on piloting mm-hmm. or staying up all night really high, then I'll be good at that. I'll be mm-hmm. able to do both reliably. But every once in a while, something un- unforeseen will still happen in that space. But I'm also controlling how far off the, how far the floor is because right. I can only go down by four points. So if I make it the maximum. Mm-hmm. The worst I can do is very good instead of excellent. And that's protecting the character concept again in a way. Yeah. And then that game also, you know, has a, a side-by-side ability with the fate points to override the fortune, which I think is something that is in most games at this point and, you know, most new games, unless the game's agenda is to, like, have real failure at certain times. And, and uh, unforeseen times. Yes. Uh, yeah, unexpected swinginess or unexpected changes for the benefit of whether it's narrative or just the experience of play or surprise or or comedy or whatever it is. Mm -hmm.
there's a thing about expressive versus deterministic systems, which is a thing that I'll have to get into at some point, but our systems in which their job is to create a language that the players can express, which almost become resource-driven systems, in which the player can express, I desire to succeed now at this point in the story, or I desire to, to succeed in this fashion. And the systems that say, I don't know if I succeed or not, let's find out. Really, that's kind of a spectrum too. Games occupy because, if, like, if you have yeah, that's force a continuum. Yeah, there's a continuum there. I think where there's some games that are you know agnostic and give you tools to do either, or you right. go like way out to one end of the spectrum or the other. But it's a spectrum. Uh, uh, it's a continuum that I don't think is. I've written about it a very little bit, and I'm going to be writing about it more in the near future. But is that I think doesn't get given the attention to its whole range that it could. I think it gets dealt with intuitively a lot more often than it gets dealt with intentionally. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, so a game that is completely uh, uh, narr- that is completely written, and part of it is there aren't a lot of examples necessarily of precisely how this would work. But well, like uh, Deep Profundus. Oh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. That game is entirely an expressive game, not entirely, but it's very far down that scale. In that, if I say a thing happens, it will happen in the manner in which I say it happens. I mean, it's sort of like an exquisite corpse of gameplay. Right. Is that in this in this constraint, this one third of the piece of paper, I can draw anything, and it will impact the next third of the paper. Undeniably, probably hilariously, and only based on what I put into it. Whereas, uh, uh, in many ways, for example, like uh, most games, again, then this is where I'm going to loop back into dice here in just a second. But is that uh, how they interact with time is how they is so entwined with whether or not they're deterministic or expressive. I express in D and D when I spend skill points, or when I buy feats, or when I assign my ability scores. I express, and then when I how I use my turns, my actual turn actions. Mm-hmm. But the dice are still deeply deterministic in terms of, does my sword hit? I don't say my sword hits. I say, I want to find out now if my sword hits. Similarly, Powered by the Apocalypse games are expressive when you advance your character. And they are expressive in the moment when you're talking, literally just uh, having the, the conversation to play. Um, and then they hand off to a very deterministic, almost you know, oracular experience to say, I don't know, can I take this thing from somebody else? Can I survive this harm? Whatever the question is. Uh, and then you reinterpret that determination into the fiction and, and into your following expressions. And that's not bad, right? But it's, it's interesting that, that where that divide is, because it's interesting to me because Powered by the Apocalypse games are not games that have a massive numbers of fate points or hero points or action points, right? We, mm-hmm. we will, part of the nature of, those, of that system is that you will honor and incorporate the deterministic aspects of it. Yeah, you will fail sometimes. Right. Well, or, or you will succeed when you didn't want to. Yeah. Is, yeah. Or when you as a player, like, it'd be really interesting if something else happened. I mean, mm-hmm. in theory, you just don't roll when those things happen. Everybody's like, well, then we just know what, we know what outcome we want, good or bad. That's not, that's not, that's not, we don't, we don't seek determinism in that moment. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually in the yeah, text of the game like in a, a lot of cases. Yeah, I think there's a, there's some playcraft to that also. Of, Definitely. Um, yeah. You know, some tables are, are more um, strict about move triggers and yeah. some are less, yeah. right? Um, in, in that way, I think to suit that thing, like, we are all agreed that that this is kind of what should happen. So let's just do that, right? Right. Versus, let's let's see what the dice say. But so if you take that notion of how this stuff gets time shifted, uh, and very often the way that it gets it gets shifted or, or dealt with in time through playcraft, as often I would say, if not more than through game design, because very often in game design, if you say roll a d twenty and then roll damage, I could roll the d twenty and the damage die at the same time and just disregard the damage die. Mm-hmm. If I miss, sometimes that's, sometimes that's awkward because you're like, but I wasted a perfectly good six, which is of course <laughs> not how that works. But right, th- that barrier exists so that what happens is that the game is about roll this die, then roll that die, then roll that die. But you almost never see that in dice pools, where it says, mm-hmm. imagine you have the three your three different d12s with different colors, and that the game is important that it is important to gameplay that first you roll the red one, then you roll the blue one, then you roll the yellow one. You could roll them all at once, unless there's a procedure or an expressive reason to get that information in that order. So that you don't know what the next die is going to be before you make a decision on the first die, right? right? That's that is kind of an ornery, dragged-out system. But time is an element in the granularity and volatility mm-hmm. that is, I think, that we we've inherited a lot of procedures and policies and, and methods for, and don't question very often. Looping back to kind of what we touched on earlier with how the the probability doesn't change based on when you roll and stuff. What we're really talking about is uh, aesthetic at the table is one element of that as well. If you roll your damage and, and your attack roll and your damage roll at the same time versus attack, then damage, etc. That's almost an aesthetic choice more than anything else. Oh, it depends what, like if there is a spend a spendable resource, then it may not be. Right. If there's can, something, there, there are lots of things that can make the time a tactical aspect, even though I think we treat it as an aesthetic right. aspect. Yeah. If you only have like one, the ability to like give yourself double damage once a day and you have to choose that before you roll damage, right. then you're going to want to see if your attack hits first 
before you roll that damage die. If I can spend a plus one to hit or a plus two to hit or whatever, but I do it before I roll, or the game is agnostic to when I spend it, different procedural decisions are going to be made, which will have different aesthetic effects to the table. And you are, as a designer, yielding that decision to either the intentionality of the table, mm -hmm. we hope, or worse, <laughs> the habits and, and, and implied, whatever that table has inherited from the last couple of games they played, in which they assume, no, everything must get spent before the roll. Does it say that? I, no, but it's just how games work. I mean, I, I've watched playtesters go through this kind of process yeah. where they assume, no, they didn't say, therefore we don't get to decide. We just, they either don't think about it because they have their own policies and procedures ingrained, or they assume that it was a mistake and obviously obviously we meant what they assume we meant. Well, that's or they a, argue about it. And all, none of these are necessarily good outcomes. Well, I mean, that's uh, a separate issue also of like, it's not your responsibility to make sure that everyone approaching your game actually interprets everything exactly the way that it like you could as long as you do your due diligence of i wrote it down it is in the material that you have for you once you are no once you're dead right once the author is dead <laughs> and and once you're in the grave and you're no longer standing there able to butt in i don't know i guess i just don't i feel like it, the, the decisions that i make about that kind of thing are more this is how this game needs to work and if I know that this game is going to be in like a play culture of something else that is going to work counter to that, I might put some material in there like, hey, make sure to remember this because it's not like how D&D works or whatever. And that's that's due diligence on my part of like knowing, thinking about my audience, trying to, to create material that communicates what I want to communicate in the context. The decision, how you express it and when you make the decision as to whether or not it is a part of the game or something that is decided after you are dead, when does that due diligence begin? Right, The expression of your due diligence to show, to show that you have done your due diligence and what is it is and is not important to you as a designer mm -hmm. versus what you leave unsaid, assuming that you not saying it is also a statement that will be heard even though it's not yeah. necessarily. Well, I mean, good. My, when does that due diligence begin? I mean, good design includes leaving stuff out and like leaving stuff to be filled in at the table. Sure. It, yeah. So, it, but you pick what gets left out. Yeah. Yeah. And so if the moment, if you don't say where, when you spend a resource to affect die rolls. Right. If you don't say it, then, then your game needs to be able to deal with people spending it before and people spending it after is what I would say. Right. right. If and you're so, like, I am leaving this piece unsaid to be filled in at the table, depending on whatever criteria they want to use. That means that that it needs to be a, like the actual effects of the mechanic need to be agnostic as to which criteria are used. Correct. Right. 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 Oh, but that transparency that where the, the mechanic becomes a window in which it the, the decision it passes right through the game and the GM or the players make the decision. Can we or can we not spend before and after the role? So what you're saying is the play culture or the table makes that decision, not me. Mm -hmm. And in which case, I mean, I would argue, why not? I mean, the, the, often there are times when you even want to hang a lantern on that decision and say, you decide. Like, either one's fine, as opposed to just leaving it unsaid. But my, my real point is why this relates to dice sure. mechanics is if you're picking a dice mechanic for speed or you're picking a dice mechanic to evoke theme or you're picking a dice mechanic for its stability, any time that you then add something that interrupts or interacts with that die mechanic, whether it's in cognitive load, which is, I mean, you're absolutely right, whether it's in thematic elements, whether it's just in a, I need, there need to be more things for characters to do to have different feats in this game or how it interacts with time. These are all decisions that once you make a different decision, then you kind of have to go back and say, okay, what does that do to the core mechanic again and to the core procedure? And so time becomes an element that is very, and not just, not just like narrative time, not just like linear time in terms of how long did it take us to resolve this die roll, but in terms of steps of play. Mm. Um, because otherwise, like I have some experience with dice pool systems or non-dice pool systems, watching players pick up the dice and roll them, not necessarily too fast for them and not necessarily too fast for the game, but too fast for the table because... People are like, whoa, you rolled it, so I guess it happened. I guess you did it. I guess I guess you swung the sword and now we have to honor the die. And sure. because there has been no statement from the game saying, No, don't you do don't you do what you want. Like you don't have to every time a die hits a table is not a binding contract or whatever, right? right? And we and that's an example of the kind of thing we leave unsaid all the time because yeah. we let the culture of play dictate some mm -hmm. of that. But if you're in your game that order of operations is important, mm -hmm. then then it's important, I think, as well, to have statements and uh, steps that clearly, either overtly or through almost insinuation, break out how the dice rolls work in time. Like if you have an opposed yeah. roll system in combat, and we're supposed oh. to roll simultaneously. Mm. Right, that needs to be clear. No, absolutely. It, it is absolutely on you to know what is important for the players to know as they access your mechanic. I mean, in, in a way, anything with dice and that, that level of volatility and uncertainty becomes a limited information game. Yeah. And if 
I can make decisions before or after I have the information makes a big difference on how I'm going to play that game. Right. And you yeah. see this a lot with, again, like to use Dogs and Vineyard as an example, the first time you play that game, there's the initiation phase. And the goal of the initiation phase is to go through one conflict with the dice so that you see how they work. Because it's important for you to know what the consequences of each decision you make with those dice is. Because if you play that game badly, you will probably have a less fulfilling experience playing Dogs in the Vineyard. Right. right. So like that's something where it's a very... And I think you're, you're right that once you get down to the level of, of quote-unquote normal die mechanics, <laughs> roll a d20. Yeah, you're basically... Once, you're, once you know you're in the realm of shorthand, everyone kind of knows how d20 mechanic works. Everyone kind of knows how a 2d6 mechanic works. That was, I, me, that, was me, that was me shrugging and making doing something with my eyebrows, I realized, yeah. silently, just because... That was a... It really a, depends who we're writing for. Imagine yeah. the shruggy emoticon. Right. Right, but uh, that's that's where you get into the, the danger of, like, you need to specify all those things that, that you mentioned. Because if you don't, uh, or you need to know that it doesn't matter or whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think the maybe a takeaway point from this is to not assume, even to something like roll attack, then roll damage. If in doubt, spell it out, right? Like, <laughs> if you if you're like, huh, I wonder if people will know how this works... Just explain how it works. Be very procedural, just in case, because who knows? And this is why I think it comes back to design and the step when you're deciding how and what dice are going to do and what they're going to speak and say in your game, what they're, what you're going to spell out is examining your own assumptions during the design process of what happens if I reverse the order of operations, even though it's just addition. What happens if 6 plus 4 is 10, but what happens if I make it 4 plus 6? Because if all we're doing is just arriving at the 10, that's one thing. But if we're doing that based on but four of these dice are yellow and six of these dice are blue. Right. right? Then what happens is you start moving these things around. Oh, yeah, yeah, there yeah. are a lot of assumptions of your own to challenge. Absolutely. And then to write down when you challenge them so that you know <laughs> that you have to that you have to then tell other people to not fall into those assumptions in play. And to to make a very concrete example, think about ties. Always think about ties. If you have any kind of opposed role or any situation where a given number generates a null result. Like, and this is, it, it sounds very basic, but it's something that, like, I didn't, and then I ran into games, like, I've playtested games, mm -hmm. where we got to a point, rolled some dice, and went, oh, that's a tie, what happens? And not only was there no specific thing, usually you can be like, oh, whatever, like, uh, the defender breaks ties, or whatever, right? Sure. Just, you can just fall back on them. I played a game where there was no consistency, or there was no information in the rest of the system to give us a particular direction to go. But it really mattered which way it went. Ever since playing that game, I was like, all right, how do ties work? Yeah. Because it's just like, it's, it's, you can make an arbitrary decision at first and then figure it out later. You can use it as an opportunity to do something cool, right? Especially if you have a limited die, like if you're working with D4s or something, you're going to get lots of ties. Say, yeah. Like maybe something awesome happens on ties. It's like, uh, I've always wanted to have a game, uh, an RPG where when sword fighting, the, the dice like in ties or something like that tell you when the two of you lock swords and get real close and go eye to eye and, and each have to say something to the other, which essentially says, so do that and then re-roll. <laughs> right? That's just, that's, you got, you know, but right. one, you need those ties to be rare enough that you're not just constantly doing that. Mm -hmm. Or rare enough that you're not constantly doing that, but also you don't want them to be so rare that people are like, oh man, we never got to talk during this sword fight. <laughs> <laughs> we never got the moment where yeah. we stare each other down over our cross swords. Right. Yeah. Someday, someday I'm going to crack that, that, that particular stone open and find the gem inside of it, but I haven't done it yet. Is there anything else about dice? Have there's, we exhausted this topic? No, but there's there's like a show's worth of stuff about dice, but I think all the rest of the stuff we're going to want to talk about dice, by a show, I mean a series worth of stuff about dice, but I think all the rest of the stuff that we're going to say about dice is going to plug into so many other topics that what I would say is, let's move on, but everybody know where your dice are. You can find Will on Patreon at patreon.com slash wordwill. You can find Nathan Paletta on Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpauletta. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just... <laughs>